Yesterday, Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords. Everyone is losing their minds. Business leaders are leaving presidential councils. Heads of state are expressing stern disapproval and threatening strained relations with the U.S. And U.S. mayors and governors are even trying to circumvent the federal government to enter into the accords despite not being themselves nation-state actors. Why is everyone freaking out about an agreement that effectively amounts to climate-caused theater? Answer? Because the global left has tapped into a widespread fear that humans are going to destroy the world. Climate change is backed by science, of course, uh, but the spread of fear is political, not science. And by creating a dichotomy between climate change deniers and acceptors, world leaders have motivated a state in which leftist identity is shaped by embracing climate change, not as science, but as a mutable god, unchangeable, worthy of being worshipped, and worthy to defend to the death and even persecute those who are merely skeptical. It is the primary rallying cry, the Allahu Akbar, of radical secularism. So we've got a lot to cover today in uh, my second podcast, and it's all going to be about the Paris Climate Accord. What is it? <clears throat> what did Trump do? Um, what didn't he do? You know, uh, what do I think? Uh, all of these things I'm going to hopefully cover. Um, it's going to be a little bit longer than normal, but I appreciate uh, your bearing with me. <clears throat> so what is the Paris Climate Accord? The Paris Climate Accord... Uh, can be summarized really in a single quote from the accord itself. Um, quote, holding the increase in global average temperature to well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, end quote. So in order to limit the impact of human-induced climate change, somewhere close to 195 countries have worked together to generate an agreement that uh, effectively seeks to keep the global temperature increase only to 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius between now and the mid-21st century, so somewhere around 2050. As of right now, only 148 countries have ratified the agreement, obviously not including the United States since Trump just pulled out. Um, it is important to understand that, that this is a non-binding agreement with no legal power to be enforced. It's not a treaty. Uh, this means that any country who signs this agreement is entering into what is effectively a political pact uh, not a legally binding treaty-like agreement. So China, for example, has agreed to, to reach its peak greenhouse emissions by no later than 2030, so 13 years from now. They're actually tracking ahead of their commit, which is a good thing. But, but let's say, under this, uh, the Climate Accords, or the Paris Accords, uh, let's say they were behind and were actually drastically increasing their greenhouse emissions and not modifying their technology to in any way address the accord requirements. A political wag of the finger from other nations would be the extent to which China would be punished. The country still abiding by the agreement would at that point shame China into acting, I suppose, if that were possible, though to what extent that would motivate a change of heart is hardly predictable. So other countries could of course use disobedience to this non-binding pact as justification for dealing unfavorably with China, uh, but the agreement itself does nothing to assure that. So I repeat, the, the agreement is political, it's not legally binding. The accord is non-binding with the express intention to build a consensus across the globe toward addressing the climate change situation. This means that the countries who join the agreement come with their own nationally determined commitments to reach the hoped-for 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius mark by mid-century. The only piece bound by international law is the reporting and reviewing of these goals, which really isn't saying much. <clears throat> So let's go back in time a bit. Uh, to understand this agreement, you kind of need to understand the Kyoto Protocol of 1997, which is really um, an expansion of the framework, uh, of the United Nations Framework Convention for, for Climate Change. So 
Um, the Kyoto Protocol of 1997 uh, also attempted to reduce global greenhouse emissions by requiring the, the countries who signed it, the signatory countries, to uphold specific emissions targets, <clears throat> very similar to the Paris Accords. Uh, the difference is Kyoto was actually a legally binding treaty. Um, it was enforceable because it was a treaty. <clears throat> so Clinton and Gore, uh, Gore <laughs> Clinton and Gore uh, brought the United States into the agreement in about 1998. Though it wasn't ratified by the Senate, it needed to be ratified by the Senate because it was a treaty. So it was consequently ineffective. <clears throat> this is critical because, because Kyoto was a treaty, uh, the U.S. Senate had to ratify it. But the Senate in 1997 had already passed the Bird, what they call the Bird-Hagel Resolution, stating that the, uh, the Senate didn't um, think it right to take part in the Kyoto Protocol. So interestingly enough, that resolution passed 95 to 0, across party lines, across everything. Um, and although Kyoto is still in effect, um, U.S. isn't in it. It's nominally in it, but it's not ratified by the Senate, so it's technically not in it. Um, and without that, um, other countries have actually started to trickle out. So Canada and Japan even um, aren't, aren't doing it, and likely um, because it doesn't present any economic benefit. And without the U.S. in it, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem as... as um, material. It doesn't seem as effective. So, um, uh, based on the Kyoto Protocol, I think you can notice the difference. The new Paris Agreement is technically not a treaty. Instead, it's much more complicated. It carries the political expectation that the United States and other Western developed nations carry the burden of example, <clears throat> as well as the financial burden to support countries uh, that don't yet have the needed technology to reduce the emissions. So, this means that uh, the U.S. gives, uh, and I think other Western nations, uh, about $100 billion per year minimum. Um, and there's even a potential change in 2020. They want to revisit it every three to five years where they would expect the U.S. commit and maybe other Western nations commit to go up by 200 to $300 billion per year. So, um, but right now there's a $100 billion per year <clears throat> minimum commit um, uh, that uh, is meant to be given uh, to developing nations to be able to progress in uh, climate uh, climate change uh, or reduction of emissions as well because they don't have the technologies that we have um, and the money that we have to be able to do that. Um, so Obama's commitment is actually pretty drastic as well. So beyond the commitment to give to other nations uh, through uh, the Paris Accords, uh, Obama specifically um, has committed to reduce greenhouse emissions in the United States or produced by the United States to 26 to 28 percent less than our 2005 level. Uh, this would require a drastic reduction in coal use, natural gas. It would uh, include an application of carbon taxes and all sorts of other regulations. So um, what are the benefits of the accord? Um, some of the potential benefits of staying in the Paris Accord um, and um, the agree some of the benefits of the agreement itself more broadly, so not just applicable to the United States, um, include maintaining U.S. influence. So uh, pulling out of the agreement means that we are forfeiting leadership in that area. This isn't a surprise under Trump, of course, who's already rolling back environmental regulation left and right. Uh, but it's still an important point. Regardless of whether we act as a good climate example country, having a seat at the table would ensure that we would maintain significant, if not primary, influence um, in um, discussions on climate change. We're, we're still by far the richest country, and money is really what will make this thing go. In fact, in, uh, I think this is clear, China, um, after our exit, and even before our exit, China is leveraging the Paris Accords to grow its influence across the globe as a more serious actor um, um, in these agreements or in climate change. 
So though we still have a seat at the table with the 1992 UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, as I referenced earlier with the Kyoto Protocols, uh, the influence is inevitably going to be stunted um, by us pulling out. And it's going to be filled, that vacuum is going to be filled by other leader countries, you know, Germany, France, the UK, uh, China, uh, even Russia, perhaps. Um, so that's the first reason for staying in is maintaining influence. Um, another reason for the U.S. to stay in um, is because it's critical for the agreement to actually be effective. So the U.S. boasts the second highest carbon emissions of any country. China uh, is the first. Uh, and I, I think ours is something like 15 to 20% globally of all carbon emissions, which is a lot. Um, and per capita, it's by far the most because China has like a billion, eight, <laughs> 1.8 billion. We have 310 million. So, um, so if we don't participate in the accords, um, you know, the accords still might have an effect, um, but it'd be unlikely to reach the 1.5 to 2 degree uh, goal that they're talking about, which is already a pretty significant goal. So in that same vein, U.S. leadership tends to be pivotal to broader participation. So if you look at the Kyoto Protocol, um, which generally has pretty pretty widespread participation, um, it was it was binding, it was a treaty, which is very different than this non-binding um, accord. But the Kyoto Agreement still has people trickling out, um, I think in large part because the U.S. isn't in it. Um, finally, it, it, could, it could be good to stay in because creating a framework that encourages countries to reduce their carbon emissions is better than nothing. Uh, more carbon emissions create a situation whereby the earth warms and methane gas is released from melted Arctic ice and tundra, um, which raises sea levels and potentially impacts agriculture, landscapes longer term. So assuming this is a net negative impact, we are all worse off as a result. Of course, you know, all this requires an agreement on the general premise, um, the premise being that carbon emissions are creating climate change um, and that that effect will be net negative. So the science on the issue is convincing, and I'm not denying it in any way. Um, though what I will say is there hasn't been much room or funding given to scientists who seek to test criticism of, of the, the, the prevailing science thus far. But that's a side note. So whether you agree or disagree that human-induced climate change is actually a thing is beside the point when it comes to the Paris Accords or in, and the U.S. participation in it. What really matters, especially for me here, is... Um, what, what impact does it have on geopolitical influence, the economy, and ultimately uh, individual freedom? So, um, and, you know, as we all know, Trump pulled out of the agreement. So everyone has been freaking out about it, and it's fine to disagree with Trump's decision. That's, that's totally okay. It's within your rights. It's your prerogative, right? But, but what isn't fine um, is disagreeing with Trump's decision, um, while at the same time assuming he did it because he's a climate change denier. Um, if you think that, you're clearly ignorant of the situation. Now, now, he may very well be a climate change denier. And, and some of his previous statements, even I think in his Make America Great Again book, he says a lot about you know it not being sure science and stuff like that. But um, it, he might be a climate change denier. Uh, but I don't think that was the justification for his decision. And I'll explain that further. But at best, I think him being a climate change denier, if he is, uh, would have only made him not an ideologue on the matter. Um, so climate change deniers aren't wrapped up in being climate change deniers, typically. They don't find their identity in that. Uh, they don't fund some sense of self through taking up the mantle of saving the world. Uh, more simply, they, they simply don't need uh, to be, or they don't tend to be ideologues on the issue. And this is good. It frees them up to think more rationally on policy surrounding environmental protection regulation, for example. Um, but Trump also said why he pulled out. I think that provides a lot of clarity. Um, and I think you can take him at his word, here at least. Um, and here's what he said in his speech yesterday, yesterday being June 1st, quote, 
In order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, by the way, I don't have a great Trump accent, so I'm just not even going to try. And now I have to start over. Quote, in order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, but begin negotiations to re-enter either the Paris Accord or a really entirely new transaction on terms that are fair to the United States, its businesses, its workers, its people, its taxpayers. So we're getting out, but we will start to negotiate, and we will see if we can make a deal that's fair. And if we can, that's great. And if we can't, that's fine. As president, I can put no other consideration before the well-being of American citizens. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States to the exclusive benefit of other countries, leaving American workers, who I love, and taxpayers, to absorb the costs in terms of lost jobs, lower wages, shuttered factories, and vastly diminished economic production. End quote. He goes on to claim, based on a study from the National Economic Research Associates, and to what extent they're biased, I'm not sure, but he, he, he references that study that's, um, that states that 2.7 million jobs would be lost by 2025, including 440,000 fewer manufacturing jobs. It also claims that Obama's plan to accommodate to the accord requirements would cut production for paper, iron, steel, coal, and natural gas. So massive reductions... And these industries, especially natural, natural gas, would drastically lower the supply of fuel for electricity, gas, and other utilities um, that companies and households have to pay. Uh, of course, coal reduction is happening naturally, especially with its replacement by natural gas. Um, um, but funny enough, the biggest contribution uh, thus far to our emissions reductions in the replacement of coal has been that replacement of natural gas uh, for coal or rather, a uh, replacement of coal with natural gas and other energy sources. That means that the Obama regulations haven't really done as much as the market's natural tendency toward natural gas, which is due to market factors. The technological innovation driving the price of natural gas down over against coal has been the biggest contributor to coal replacement and corresponding emissions reductions. So think about that. Um, for full transparency, uh, the environmental groups uh, tend to claim uh, that the drop in emissions is more a a product of the recession than a shift to natural gas, but I think both li likely played a role. To what extent each impacted it is unclear, um, and it'd be hard to really verify that. Um, there's also a shift in industry and a drastic change in consumer behavior uh, because of new views on climate change. All of these things played into it, but it, it's critical to understand that actual techno technological innovation has been a massive, um, or played a massive role in actually reducing emissions, and that was economically driven. Um, so for Trump, it clearly seems to be an economic issue. A, a massive cut in coal and natural gas production, and other uh, things as well, will reduce the workforce drastically over time and will undoubtedly increase the cost of utilities across the United States. The cost of compliance to any regulations will only amplify those costs. Um, that means an increase of utility costs will be represented in a few ways. First, households will pay more for utilities, which tend to be a relatively high percentage of particularly poor households, by the way. Um, and their monthly expenses. Second, companies will have to pay more for utilities to conduct operations. Um, they would, of course, need to pass this cost to the consumer, which would increase monthly expenses for households again, and the poor will be hit the hardest. This increase in fuel costs would also reduce total revenue because higher costs would reduce demand for products. Less revenue means less money to reinvest in innovating, which slows economic growth, growth across the board. And as I said earlier, technological innovation is actually a big factor in a reduction of emissions. 
And this isn't even including state and federal carbon emissions taxes and the like. They estimate this will be, um, this in combination with the other things I've already listed, uh, will be a, a loss of uh, a potential $3 trillion in GDP over time and a total of 6.5 million industrial jobs. And they uh, further estimate that $7,000 less, um, that there will be $7,000 less income for households. Um, there are also issues ancillary to the economic issue for Trump as well, it seems, at least. He talks a lot about coal. He claims that the U.S. has to reduce coal by 87%, while China and India and even Europe can continue construction of coal plants, which seems unfair, right? And, and here he's being a bit deceptive. Uh, Obama's plan to accommodate um, to the Accords drops coal by that much in the U.S. China and India um, and Europe's plans simply meet their emissions targets without hitting coal production that hard. So it's really a matter of uh, Obama's plan being different than other nations' plans. Um, and Trump could easily change that and to accommodate to the Accords and simply not reduce coal as much. Uh, that would be difficult, though, because the emissions targets are pretty extreme, and coal is among the most inefficient fuels, even if we're counting clean coal. Uh, but Trump's uh, claim points to a different reality. Um, it isn't necessarily fair to unevenly distribute the burden of emissions reduction for countries within the agreement. Um, Trump is complaining about adversely impacting our manufacturing ecosystem while benefiting China, India, and others. Um, they have softer targets, which means they can continue to compete where America might not be able to, specifically in the coal industry, for example. The problem is that other countries don't have the technology to produce some fuels as efficiently as the U.S. already does. So forcing the United States to forfeit industries it does better than lesser developed countries creates a demand for production in these other countries who actually do it more inefficiently. But why would they do it more inefficiently when they are beholding to the Paris Accords, you may ask? Well, because they're only nominally beholding to the Accords. They would only get a talking to and a wag of the finger, according to the Accords requirements. Um, but then their industry would prosper, and they can suck up the demand the U.S. would have taken. That's typically worth a stern talking to, when your people can eat more, um, and you, your leaders are more popular because uh, economically the country's doing better. So uh, I'll stop there on Trump's economic reasons, but... Um, there's a separate one, and I was reading about this um, in lawfareblog.com. Um, a guy by the name of Adam White has a, a fascinating article about this. He claims that Trump and his legal team are likely worried about activist judges and enviro lawyers who plan to use the Paris Agreement in tandem um, with Section 115 of Obama's Clean Power Act to force regulate via the EPA. Came out of nowhere, right? <laughs> activist judges could be the reason that uh, Trump pulled out of um, the, the Paris Accords? Well, hear me out. Um, as you know, Trump is rolling back environmental regulation. Even one of Trump's executive orders instructs a review of Obama's clean power plan, in which Section 115 exists, um, and which many see as burdensome when it comes to regulation. So many companies, many Republicans specifically see it as burdensome. And I'm sure future orders uh, from Trump will reverse some aspects of this clean, or, uh, clean power plan, if not the whole thing. So if Trump were to actually sign the Paris Accords, um, it's possible that an activist judge with the help of an enviro lawyer could interpret that as implying applying to an order um, Trump passes rejecting the Clean Power Act, um, since an order like that would go against the spirit of the Paris Accords. Sounds crazy, right? Why would an activist judge interpret the Paris Accords as relevant to domestic policy? <laughs> well, you know, if you take a look at the Ninth and Fourth Circuit rulings on Trump's travel ban, um, the latter of which I actually spoke about last week, um, it doesn't seem that out of whack, right? Um, it wouldn't be that surprising. 
and, and to add on to it, uh, the, uh, the, chief, the former chief counsel of the Sierra Club, ultra-liberal, ultra-enviro organization, uh, called the combination of the Paris Accords and Section 115 of the Clean Power Act, quote, the silver bullet de jour of the enviros, end quote. So let that, let that sink in. <laughs> Staying in this agreement opens the Trump administration up to more lawsuits meant to circumvent the legislative process on environmental regulation. There's one final reason Trump pulled out, and it seems like the most obvious one, um, and it's probably the most important, at least for Trump. That reason is politics. <laughs> Why do you think he spoke so much about coal? Coal is going away. It's being replaced by natural gas. So why is he still talking about it? Um, because coal miners still vote. <laughs> um, and he needs those Rust Belt states. Um, that's how he redrew the lines um, and took previously, um, previously Democratic states. Um, so it makes political sense for him. So that's what I think Trump thinks. So what do I think? Um, I think Trump erred on the side of his base. Um, and therefore made the right decision, at least politically, which is the right decision typically for politicians. <laughs> uh, but removing politics from the equation, which is slightly possible, um, I still think Trump made the right move. Um, I do that. I think so for three reasons. And just as a caveat, I, I believe in climate. I believe that climate change is a thing. I think we should take care of the earth. I think that um, um, some regulation is helpful, um, if not meant. Uh, uh, to be overly burdensome, um, if not meant to exert control as much as actually protect the environment. Um, and my opinion is much more extensive than that, but I just want to clarify that like, I'm, not a, I'm not a climate change denier. So, But I still think Trump made the right move for three reasons. First, the Paris Accords isn't a treaty. As I said earlier, because this is not a treaty, there is not really an enforcement mechanism. The U.S. would have borne the burden of example and paid the economic price, as well as actual financial subsidies to other countries. Uh, further, be because this isn't a treaty, it doesn't have the strength of perpetuity. So if a new president who disagreed with the Accords took office, he could simply pull out of it, just as Trump did um, after Obama. So a better pathway forward would have been for Obama to work with the Senate to get this approved so the next president didn't or couldn't just pull out. He didn't for the same reason it would have been a waste of time for Trump to actually take the treaty path. Because there's no way this accords uh, would be accepted by two-thirds of this, a two-third majority of the Senate. No way. Not a chance. But finally, and this is more of a personal note, I don't think multilateral financial or other commitments should be done apart from ratification by the Senate via the treaty process. Um, it's a safer and longer-reaching path that would and should serve as precedent and rule. It prevents our commitments to other nations from being appended, and it also prevents us from entering into them at the whims of an ideologue who cares less about our democratic process and more about his ideals being achieved at the expense of the people who voted for him or voted for the representatives who disagree with him in Congress. Uh, to borrow a line from the National Review's David French, quote, binding, enduring multinational agreements should exist as treaties. As without a treaty, there is no binding, enduring multinational agreement. It kind of, uh, end quote, it, it, it kind, of, uh, kind of smacks in the face of the logic of the Paris Agreement. It really doesn't do what it says it's going to do. So, I mean, um, both diplomatically and logically when you look at the terms. So, The second reason I agree with Trump's decision to pull out is because I, too, think it's bad for our economy. 
I lean more toward the side of decreased innovation as a factor for my decision rather than Trump who talks about coal and is, seems to be more politically motivated. Um, I'm just trying to be practical, right? Uh, coal is going away because, because of technological innovation, as I said before. Uh, bogging down businesses, particularly small businesses, uh, limits the extent to which companies will innovate or could innovate because um, they don't have the capital to be able to reinvest in innovation. So I don't have the, the time to talk much more on that because uh, I'm already going to go long today, but um, you know, there's a little bit more, right? You, you probably read a lot of articles about enterprises, specifically Elon Musk and Tesla, you know, um, wanting to actually stay in the agreement. Even ExxonMobil wanted to stay in the agreement. Um, well, why would they want to stay in the agreement if it's bad for business, you may ask? And that's a good question. Well, I think first off, it's really good for PR to be for climate change. Uh, and also most enterprises stood to gain uh, from this deal because they would be able to influence negotiations on climate targets, etc. So that kind of goes with um, having a seat at the table. But now the perception is we don't have that seat at the table. Um, remember, though, enterprises have more buying power also to redu reduce emissions, specifically over against small businesses. When there's an unhealthy small business environment, that kind of helps enterprises to an extent. Um, and that's something to keep in mind. I'm not implying anything nefarious, uh, but environmental regulation oftentimes can have the unintended effect of putting more competitive pressure on small businesses, um, which is almost the foundation for at least our middle class in the United States, um, barring those who work at large enterprises. Uh, the, the third and final reason um, I think Trump was right to pull out of the agreement um, is that um, you know broad-reaching multilateral agreements, binding or not, um, tends to and can naturally inhibit the freedom of individuals. So uh, consider the, the, the all-too-common conversation about federal versus state power, right? Or the state, uh, state versus federal government arguments. The more power granted to the federal government um, to have jurisdiction over states, the less freedom the single individual has. Uh, government ought to be strong enough to protect the rights of the individual, but limited enough to not hinder the rights of individuals as well. Um, the Constitution recognizes this. That's why the, the Bill of Rights relegates all rights not listed therein to be decided by the states. But now liberal states are realizing the importance of this under Trump. They don't like Trump's decision. Um, uh, the, the governor who disagrees with Trump's decision, that state has the right to accommodate to the Paris Accords on their own. That doesn't mean they have the right to actually go and, um, you know, do diplomacy on their own um, and try to enter into the agreement over and against or a... Uh, apart from the federal government. Um, but it, it does mean that they could actually look at what's detailed and say, well, our state's going to abide by this to what extent we can. Um, they have the freedom to do that. Um, the more power relegated to the states. Um, uh, they, they want the right to create for their own states policies they think are right when it disagrees with the policies of the federal government. But they do this because they are disappointed that the federal government didn't carte blanche apply federal laws that force them to do that. <laughs> um, so what if the climate change folks disagreed with what Trump was trying to get them into and didn't want to take part? You see, Trump didn't force people to do anything. He simply prevented a situation that forced the United States as a whole to do something or accommodate to something many in the United States and many states as a whole too might not want to do. Now the states have the right to do what they want to do. Uh, generally speaking, they can accommodate to the accords. Um, but they don't have a right to not do what they are forced to do by an agreement with 195 countries that won't really do what it says it wants to do because it doesn't bind any of the parties. Um, 
Simply put, Trump pulled the U.S. out of an agreement that doesn't really do much. It's climate change theater. It would have been acquiescence to an accord that likely won't limit the temperature rise to 1.5 to 2 degrees, but will cost 1 20th of our national debt just in payouts in the next 5 to 10 years. Uh, not including a $1 to $3 trillion potential loss in GDP over time. Which again, adversely inhibits um, the technological innovation, which, as I've stated, is one of the key factors in reducing emissions. So I, I totally get wanting to help the environment. I want to as well. But this agreement doesn't do that. It creates the facade of addressing the issue while redistributing right... It creates the facade of addressing the issue while redistributing the commodity wealth to underdeveloped nations at the expense of the world's largest economy. There's got to be a better way. So, having said all this, I would not have been super bummed if we stayed in. Encouraging the entire world to have the same goal of reducing carbon emissions, even if it's only nominal, is a good step forward to protect the environment. I think we should all desire that. Christians particularly should do what they can and hope for opportunities to make humanity good stewards of creation. Climate change is a thing, but even if it wasn't, we should still take care of the earth. It's stupid, selfish, and exploitative not to. But it's a hard decision. Uh, Christians also want to help the poor. And I think there's a much better argument that abstaining from, from this agreement actually does help the poor. Thanks, everyone. Um, I will be back um, next week. And uh, the goal this week was actually to talk about um, where Trump is off as a president. Um, but then the climate accord thing happened. And obviously, it was the biggest news of the week. So I wanted to discuss it. Um, have a good week, everyone.